In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. In 2007, the Washington Post ran a story about a man playing the violin at a Washington, D.C. metro stop during the morning rush hour. A reporter with a hidden video camera taped the reactions of commuters passing by. For 45 minutes, the musician played while most of the commuters, there were more than a thousand who passed by in that period of time, simply rushed past without even a glance in the direction of the musician. A handful stopped to listen, but only briefly. And some even threw a couple of bills into his violin case. So in 45 minutes, he made $32. But no one reacted to this event as if it were extraordinary. Clearly, for this bunch of commuters, here was just another street musician on an ordinary day at the metro station, except that it wasn't ordinary at all. It can't be ordinary when the musician is Joshua Bell, one of the world's finest concert violinists, playing some of the most complex pieces in his repertoire on a multi-million dollar Stradivarius violin. Three days earlier, he'd filled Boston Symphony Hall with people paying $100 a seat at minimum to hear the very same pieces. It was a perfect example, and this is why this reporter had done it, conducted this social experiment. It was a perfect example of how the expectations we bring to situations shape our perceptions, often despite the evidence in front of us. No one expected a world-class violinist to show up incognito and give a free concert at a metro station. So it seems very few people that day heard world-class music. They heard what they expected to hear, if they heard it at all. An ordinary street musician, and they responded accordingly. That's pretty much what's happening in our gospel lesson from the 10th chapter of Mark this morning. Two of Jesus' disciples... James and John reveal that they have some pretty fantastic expectations of what Israel's Messiah will be like. Expectations that had been built up over centuries of a people waiting. And these expectations have in fact distorted their understanding of who Jesus really is. Like the commuters in the metro station, their expectations have made Jesus into someone he's not. In this case, in a sense, inflating um, their expectations of what he will do for them. James and John tell Jesus that when he comes into his glory, they want to be seated on his right and on his left. They want positions of honor in the new Israel over which the Messiah will rule forever. But as Jesus is quick to inform them, they don't seem to be getting it, what it means to truly follow him and to be one of his disciples. They've got a lot of the story right. They know their scripture and all the prophets, what all the prophets have foretold about the Messiah. They believe that he is to come from the house of David. They believe that when he comes to reign as king, he will have overthrown the world's 
kingdoms and that he would establish an everlasting reign of justice and peace that will bless not only Israel but the entire world. And they believe that Jesus is him, the one anointed by God to do this. The problem is, like pretty much everyone else in first century Israel, these disciples had imagined the Messiah to be coming soon. The hope was almost at a fervent pitch. And they understood, or they had come to a belief that when he came, he would need to get the ball first, rolling first through political machinations and even politi- and military action. Because if one's going to establish a new kingdom, one first had to drive out the Romans, right? James and John understood that the Messiah would have to be a pretty powerful figure to pull this all off, divinely empowered, in fact. So if Jesus was the Messiah, then Jesus was exactly the kind of guy that James and John wanted to stay close to if they could. Obviously, they figured that if they stuck by him, good things would happen for them because God is on his side. When they make these thoughts known to Jesus, however, and ask for a position of honor in his court, he tells them, you have absolutely no idea what you are asking for. You understand, I think, that I'm going to be paraphrasing a bit here, but he says, essentially, do you think you're following someone who's going to sweep into power and hand out favors to his biggest fundraisers when he gets into office? This is not what this is about. Are you prepared, he asked, to drink the cup that I will drink or be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? When else does Jesus mention the cup he's been asked to drink? At the garden in Gethsemane, with the cross looming before him. Jesus prays, Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet not what I want, what you want. What he's telling James and John ultimately is this. This is the pattern of discipleship. If you want to be exalted with me as you say you do, you have to understand that I'm not going to take on Rome and glide into victory and then start doling out rewards to those who fought alongside me. God's ways are not your ways. If you want to be exalted with me as you say you do, then you're going to have to go the distance with me all the way to the suffering and death on the cross. The cross is the central symbol of our faith for a reason. Yet I recently heard a preacher talk about how most Christians today, especially those of us in first world settings where Christians rarely face persecution, we have lost our sense of shock and scandal over the cross. And I think he's absolutely right. We hang, he said, these ornate crosses over our baby's cribs and we wear them around necklaces and on earrings. But if we want to understand how it would have struck James and John to be told this, that, that what this life is about is the cross... Then imagine, instead of a pretty little 
ornate cross over a crib. Imagine seeing the picture of a man or woman facing a firing squad hanging in a pink little frame over your baby's crib. Imagine a little gold electric chair hanging from around our necks. Jesus wants, uh, wants to know, do we understand that if we want the full fruits of relationship with God, then we must shoulder the crosses of this world right alongside him? Do we understand that he bids us to come and die, if not physically, then die to all of our expectations of how we think our life should go so that we can instead embrace the life that he has for us. We aren't so different from James and John, you and I. That's why their story is here. It's here to challenge us and to encourage us. People come into relationship with Christ in a lot of different ways for a lot of different reasons. But if we look at those reasons honestly, most of them are pretty self-centered. That is our human nature. We come to relationship with God because we want something. We need something. And there's nothing wrong with that. I wasn't raised in the church, some of you know. We didn't pray or read scripture or even talk about God in my house growing up. But I was blessed with a friend who exposed me to Christianity when I was a teenager, enough for me to understand that there was something in it that I longed for in my life. I was drawn to it because I wanted something. I needed something. I came to Christ looking for a still center in the chaos of my family life. And in a way, I was looking for a replacement family. Ultimately, I've found both of those things and so much more in this walk of faith, but not at all in the smooth sailing way in which I had imagined it would come. Nothing is wrong with coming to God in our need or with the deepest desires of our heart. God loves us so much, Scripture tells us, that God numbers the hairs on our head. But if 10 or 20 or 50 years into our relationship with God, we find that we only really pray when our back is up against the wall and we've exhausted all other options, well, then we may have some growing up to do in our faith. Jesus lays it on the line this morning and says, you know, folks, I love you, but this really isn't all about you. (laughs) It's about me. And it's about the hope that I have to bring to this world. Can you let go for a moment and consider what it would be like to be a part of God's purposes for the world around you and not just for you? After Jesus gives James and John this little talking to, he calls the rest of his disciples together and he continues the lesson. Whoever wants to be great among my disciples, he says, must become servant of all. For the Son of Man, the Messiah, came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. You know, there's a freedom and peace and unbelievable joy in letting go of our self-centered nature and surrendering our lives to God's care and asking God, to put us to use in furthering his purposes in the world. 
But if we want to experience that joy, we have to let go of our deep-seated, often unconscious beliefs that if God really loves us, God will bless us by making life go smoothly in the way that we imagine it to go and simply filling our lives with what we think is good. There are preachers who will tell you that that is the gospel, but apparently they haven't been reading the whole Bible. My husband and I learned this lesson the hard way, which is usually how we learn things, right? I know I'm going a bit long here, but if you'll indulge me a story, it speaks, I think, right to the point. You may have seen us um, running around here. We've been worshiping here for about eight months now um, with this little bright blonde-headed guy who comes with the the group across here and always waves. Um, His name is Sam, and we adopted Sam through foster care in Los Angeles County. After years of trying to have a baby ourselves, we decided finally that we would adopt through foster care because more than having our own biological baby, we just wanted to be parents. And we figured that adopting through foster care was a way we could do some good for the world in the process. We were so idealistic. Well, before Sam came to us, there was a boy we'll call BJ, a little Mexican-American boy born to an undocumented immigrant, a schizophrenic young woman with no known family. That is all we knew about him when he was removed from her custody at birth for his safety and placed with us at five days old. When we held him in our arms, we cried and we beamed with joy. He was the most beautiful thing we had ever seen. And we were going to be his parents. Or so we thought. For six very long months of cuddles and cleaning up exploding diapers and all that goes with becoming a parent. For six months, we were told that he had no known family, and so we imagined and came to believe that he would be our family. And then the story changed. BJ had an uncle. He was 20 years old and also undocumented, and he had a girlfriend who was 19 at the time, and they had been searching for his sister for months after she'd run away from home off her meds six months pregnant. A few weeks later, the county decided that BJ would, in fact, be removed from our care and placed with his uncle and his girlfriend because that's how foster care works. Biological family, if they're in any way capable of providing for a child, is the first choice. Foster parents are a safety net. They're the option of last resort. The few weeks that we awaited the decision of the county about whether he would stay with us or go, were by far the most formative weeks of my Christian life thus far. Far more than seminary. Far more than years serving in a parish. (laughs) We had put all of our, we had to put all of our hopes and dreams about being a family, all the love that we had for this precious child, squarely in God's hands. We had a choice. We could either fight it and be angry and frustrated and fight it, or we could place it in God's hands, our family and his well-being, and say, Father, if it is possible, 
Let this cup pass from us, but your will, not ours. And an amazing thing happened as we did that. As we relinquished all of our expectations and hopes for what we thought would be our family, we found ourselves opening up to these two young people who, at first blush, you think, are you kidding? (laughs) Why would they take this on? But we began to see them for who they were, how they had sought after their sister and this child for months and months. They got married to show the county how serious they were about caring for this child. We got to know them. We opened up our hearts to them and they to us. And instead of being angry and being grounded in that by grace, I can't explain it any other way, we were given the ability to ask God to use us in whatever way we could be used to help BJ and his family as long as we were in his life. And when the day came that we had to say goodbye, it broke us completely. But in the days and weeks that followed, we found ourselves coming back together again in a way more whole than we were before. In a sense, in a way that a butterfly comes out of a cocoon. Joshua Bell, who played that day in the metro station, that reporter caught up with some of those people that had passed him by without even noticing that he was there playing and, at, and told them what it was they had missed and asked them, do, do you, why did you miss that? <laughs> and what they said over and over again was first, They just didn't expect a world-class artist to be in the metro station. It was exactly as I had said. Our expectations shape our perception, and, and we miss things. But the other part of it, the other explanation, was that people were just too busy, too focused on getting, taking care of business and getting what they need to get in their lives, getting to work, providing for their families, making sure that things go smoothly in our lives, that they were so busy that they missed this beautiful thing happening right before their eyes. Let us never be too grounded in our own hopes and expectations and vision for what our life would be, should be like, what God's blessings look like, that we miss what they really are. Let us no be, never be so mired and busy in our own doing that we miss the opportunity to let Christ take the lead and show us what life is really like. Amen.